Our lesson today comes from the epistle of James. I will read in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Here again, God's Word. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does it profit, my brother? And if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to him, to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Whereas the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. We are pressing our way through James and we are beginning a new section today. Uh, really, verses 14 to 26 is... Uh, is a is a distinct section. You'll notice I started reading in verse 13. There's a reason for that that I will come to. Uh, but if you're familiar uh, with these verses in James, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, you know that these are some of the most controversial verses in all of Scripture. This is one of the most contested passages in the whole Bible. Uh, in this section, James says, our father Abraham was justified by works. James says a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And so people wonder, how does James square with Paul? Who uses Abraham as an example of justification by faith apart from works. Who says we are justified by faith and we're justified by grace apart from works. How do you reconcile James and Paul? How do they fit together in the same Bible, in the same canon of Scripture? Well, I'll just tell you up front, I do not think there is any tension at all between Paul and James. I think they harmonize perfectly, and I would say even easily once you understand what's going on in these verses. But I'm not going to show you how that happens uh, this morning. I'm going to let the suspense build a little bit. Before trying to reconcile James with Paul, let's just deal with James. Let's deal with James on his own terms. And today I especially want to focus on verses 14 to 17. I think we're probably going to have three sermons in all on this section in James because this passage is so important. It is so full of crucial teaching. It is so directly applicable to the churches 
life today. It says so many things we need to hear that the church of today needs to hear. So much of what it says is critical to our understanding of the whole Bible and our understanding of the Christian life. Now, as we move into this section of James, there are uh, a few things we want to keep in mind that will help us better understand this section of the letter. First, you got to understand, James is building an argument. Maybe the argument is not as clear right on the surface of the text as what you sometimes find in Paul's letters. But he is building an argument, or really he has a series of arguments, one stacked on top of another. All these arguments James is making, each section is linked uh, with the others. Each new section picks up threads from the previous section and weaves them into a new argument. And that's certainly the case here. We've just spent some time looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And we saw there that James is speaking of an assembly of the church's courts. And James is taught there that uh, when the church holds court, the verdicts rendered in the courts of the church should be both impartial and merciful. But towards the end of that section, you can sense that James is shifting from the church's courts to the divine court, from pastors and elders as judges to God as the judge. Certainly that's hinted there in verse 13 where we find the judges will be judged. And that's why they need to show mercy because they want to be shown mercy themselves when they step into God's law court. Indeed, that's the clear teaching of Scripture from beginning to end. We will all stand before God as our judge. We will come before God as judge in His court at the last day. And that really is what James is dealing with in this next section beginning in verse 14. Who will be justified in God's court at the last day? When that great day of judgment happens, who will be vindicated and who will be condemned? Who will be acquitted? Who will be saved in that great courtroom drama at the last day? And who will not be saved? And what we find is that the same principles that James says should govern the courts of the church will also be displayed in God's court at the last day. So, for example, James said back in verse 1, and he says again in verse 9 of chapter 2, that the church's courts should be impartial picking up on this teaching from the Old Testament about the impartiality of judges, the impartiality of the courts. He says the church's courts should be impartial. And he illustrates that with a rich man and a poor man. The rich man shouldn't get any special favors in court. The rich man should not be allowed to get away with oppressing the poor just because he has more power and influence. The rich and poor should be held to the same standard. They should be judged according to their works. They should be judged according to their character, not according to their income or their status. An impartial judge judges according to works, not irrelevant factors like wealth or we might say ethnicity, anything like that. And so it is with God's court. God's verdict at the last day will not be based on wealth or race or sex. God is an impartial judge. And James makes it clear Uh, He makes this clear with his twin examples towards the end of the passage. He brings forth Abraham and Rahab as exhibit A and exhibit B. of Who will be justified in God's law court at the last day? And if you want to see an impartial judgment at work, here it is. You've got Abraham, who is a male, 
who was very wealthy, who was the father of the Jewish nation. And then you've got Rahab, who was a female, who was not so wealthy, and who was a Gentile. In fact, she was a Canaanite. And yet both received the same verdict in God's law court because they had faith. And they had works that demonstrated their faith. Abraham and Rahab were both judged according to their works, not according to their sex or their ethnicity or their wealth level. That's an impartial judgment. It's a judgment according to works, not according to race or sex or economic status. That's how it is to happen. But the church's courts, we found, when we looked at the first part of chapter 2, the church's courts are also to be places of mercy. Places where sins can be forgiven, where sinners can find mercy. All who repent, all who call upon the Lord will find this mercy. They will find their sins forgiven. And so it is with God's judgment in the divine court. In the divine court, God is merciful to all who call upon Him. He mercifully forgives all who trust in Him with a living faith. He certainly forgave Abraham and Rahab. They're brought forward as examples of, of people who are justified by their works, but they also had sinful works that had to be forgiven. And we know God showed them mercy. We find here that God mercifully accepts our good works, whatever imperfections might remain in them. He mercifully accepts all who seek to obey Him by faith just as He mercifully accepted Abraham and Rahab and their works. So He will accept us and our works as well if we are looking to His mercy. So the very same themes James has been developing earlier in chapter 2 carry right over into this new section, only now transposed from the church's courts to the heavenly courts. And indeed, I would say this theme of judgment even continues into the next section in chapter 3 when James starts off by saying teachers, not many should presume to be teachers because teachers will be judged for how they've used their tongues. Teachers will be judged for what they've taught. Not many should seek to be teachers because they'll be judged more strictly, James says. That's a position of privilege and with great privilege comes great responsibility. And so teachers will be judged according to their teaching. So the judgment, of the, the theme of judgment continues on even into the next section as James introduces the topic of speech. The judgment theme is still there. In fact, I would say, if we really want to understand James 2, 14 to 26, we've really got to reach even further back into the earlier section of James and see how this fits with and carries forward other themes he's already introduced. There are other themes even further back in the letter that James is continuing to develop and expand upon here. In James chapter 2, James contrasts a dead faith that is useless, a faith that does not save, with a living faith that produces works of obedience and results in final justification. But that's just another way of getting at what James said back in chapter 1 when he contrasted hearing the word with doing the word. We saw this back in James, James chapter 1. James contrasts merely hearing the word with doing the word, putting it into practice. And so he says in verse 22 of chapter 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. If all you do is hear, you've deceived yourself if you think that's enough. No, you have to do the word. Be a doer of the word, James says. Verse 25 of chapter 1, do not be a mere hearer of the word who forgets it, 
but a doer of the word who acts. There it is. It's not enough to hear. You have to hear and then put it into practice. You've got to hear and do. Hear and act. Hearing without doing leads to a faith without works, which is worthless. Hearing with doing, <clears throat> hearing with doing uh, demonstrates a working, loving, living faith, the kind of faith that James says brings salvation. Your works demonstrate that you have the right kind of faith, the kind of faith that brings salvation. Doing the Word, putting it into practice, shows, it proves, it verifies the authenticity, the genuineness, the reality of your faith. So it's not enough to hear the Word. It's not enough to profess the faith. You have to do it. You have to do what the Word says. You have to have obedience. You have to do good works. A passive faith that does not lead to action is a useless faith. It's merely hearing. And it's not enough. Hearing is not enough. Talking is not enough. It's not enough to hear about the faith. It's not enough to talk about the faith. There has to be obedience. James is picking up on that theme he's already introduced. And of course, I think there's one more thing we need to say here in terms of how James has already laid the groundwork earlier in the letter for what he's going to say in this part. For James, true faith and obedience, true faith and the obedience that flows from that faith are grounded in grace. We might say that this faith and the obedience that follows from it, these are grounded in the new birth he has described back in chapter 1. Where James says the word of truth, that is the gospel, has been implanted in us. He says of God's own will, he brought us forth as a first fruits of his creatures. There's the foundation for a working faith. God, by his own gracious will, brought us forth. He birthed us into this new creation. He made us new creatures, new kinds of, uh, of humans, new kinds of men and women and children. He's brought us forth as the first fruits of his creatures. That grace, the grace of the new birth is what brings us to faith. It's what produces this obedience. So everything James has, says here in chapter 2 about faith, about work, it all traces back to this source. He's already given to us back in chapter 1 when he told us every good and perfect gift, including the gift of faith, including the gift of repentance, including the gift of obedience. All of these gifts come from our gracious and glorious Father above who's brought us forward into this new creation by His own gracious will. So there you have an introduction to this section. Themes that James has already introduced are simply being developed in this section. And that should be kept in mind. As we look at verses 14 to 26, keep in mind everything else James has already been teaching. Okay, With those things in view, then what I want us to do here this morning is look in more detail at verses 14 to 17 and really focus in on these verses. James says, in verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? What James is getting at is the quality of true faith. Saving faith. Real faith, the kind of faith that counts with God, is a working faith. And clearly he's contrasting this with false faith 
or with temporary faith that faith doesn't that, that doesn't make a difference in somebody's life. A faith without works does no one any good. A faith that doesn't produce works doesn't lead to salvation. If your faith makes no difference in how you live, it will make no difference in your eternal destiny either. If your faith does not make a difference in how you live, it does not make a difference in your standing before God. An empty faith does not justify. See, faith not only looks to Jesus as Savior, faith submits to Him as Lord. Again, go back to the beginning of chapter 2 and you see this. Uh, James there speaks of holding to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Lord. We hold to the faith of this glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, real faith, is active, it is engaged, it is obedient, it is responsive to God's Word, it is submissive to Christ's Lordship. This kind of faith would never claim Jesus as Savior without also submitting to Him as Lord. So having established the deep connection between faith and works, James proceeds to illustrate it as he so often does. James will do this again and again. He'll introduce some principle and then he'll provide some kind of illustration. The illustration is not the only possible way of looking at this or working out this principle, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an important one. And that's what James does here. He gives an illustration. And here his illustration has to do with caring for the poor. And it's really interesting. This is one of those themes that we find throughout the book, throughout the letter of James. Concern for the poor. Giving tangible aid to those in need. This deep concern for the poor. It's a a theme woven throughout the letter. In fact, go back to the end of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We talked about this. James give us, gives us a three-legged stool. This three-legged stool of the true religion. The three pillars of the true religion. To bridle your tongue. To visit widows and orphans in their tribulation. And to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Visiting widows and orphans. They're needy. They're, 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 they're uh, in tribulation. And so what does real faith do? Real faith acts on their behalf. Widows and orphans are mentioned. Uh, here because they are usually poor. They're usually weak. They're often alone. Real faith sees those needs and jumps in to meet those needs. Chapter 5, the very beginning of the passage, we read it this morning, he's going to take on the rich who are acting to oppress the poor. And he tells them misery is coming their way because of how they use their riches and how they abuse the poor. Well, here in chapter 2, when he illustrates true faith, when he wants to show what true faith looks like, He points to ministering to the needy. And so in the next verse, verse 15, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James is saying good intentions are not enough. Good wishes are not the same as good deeds. Just like hearing without doing is empty, so saying without doing is empty. Saying be warmed and filled without doing something about the problem you've seen, without doing something about these needs is not sufficient. Those with saving faith, James is saying, will provide help and hope to the poor. Real faith demonstrates itself in providing help and hope to the poor. Those with faith will seek to meet the bodily needs of the poor. See, faith will make a difference not only in your own life, how you live, it's going to make a difference in other people's lives. 
It only transforms your life, it transforms the lives of others because by faith you reach out into the needy world around you to meet needs. James says real faith will seek to address the physical or material needs. You'll seek to address physical and material needs within your sphere of responsibility. You'll seek to take care of those who are underprivileged or disadvantaged in some way. Now, go back to verse 14. Look at how verses 14 and 15 fit together. What's happening here. Verse 14, someone says he has faith. Okay, He makes the claim of being a believer. He professes faith, but he lacks the deed that should accompany faith. That's analogous then to verse 16, where someone says to the poor, go in peace, be warm and fill, but then doesn't do deeds that would warm and fill that person. Can you see what James is doing here? This is about people who are all taught. They talk about the faith. They talk about caring for the poor, but they don't do anything. They don't act. They don't actually obey. They don't put the word into practice. You see what James is teaching here? Faith lives according to the word of God. In fact, if we go back again to the earlier part of chapter 2, we can say faith lives according to the royal law. That's what James calls uh, the, the, the teaching of Jesus, the law of Christ, the royal law. What is this royal law? The royal law is the law that describes the life of a true king. What's it mean to live like a king, to live according to the royal law? The law God gives to his kingly people, his royal people. We might think a king is somebody who gets others to obey him and meet all his needs and serve him constantly. That's the world's way of looking at kingship. That'd be the royal law for worldly king, but not so here. Biblically, the king is a servant. The royal law is a law that calls us to love and service. Think of some of the royal figures in Scripture and how they live. People who were royal in some form or fashion. Think of Boaz in the book of Ruth. Boaz was not technically a king, of course. There was no king in Israel at that point. But Boaz is described as a mighty man of valor. He's a great warrior, a great hero, a great leader, a ruler in Israel. He's a great man. He's a godly man. He's a noble man. He's a leader in Israel. And yes, King David will come from his... He's an ancestor of King David. King David is one of his descendants. So you can say, Boaz is a royal figure. Well, what did Boaz do? How did he show his royalty? Well, one thing he did is he cared for widows. Ruth and Naomi. Boaz was generous to the poor. Indeed, we find in the book of Ruth, he followed the gleaning laws of the Torah that allowed the poor to come in and harvest the corners of the fields. When Boaz saw Ruth coming to glean, he made sure that she would be safe, that she would not be harmed. He even had them leave a little extra grain for her to take back home to Naomi. Boaz looked out for this widow. The gleaning system, you know, it's interesting to think about it. The gleaning system required the poor to work, which is an important principle of biblical mercy ministry. It wasn't just a hand out. The poor had to do something. But it also required wealthy landowners like Boaz to provide an opportunity for the poor to make it on their own. It was an act of deliberate inefficiency. It would cut into the productivity and the profit of the wealthy landowner, but it was the right thing to do as an act of faith and generosity to those in need. 
That's Boaz. He's certainly a royal figure. You see the royal law reflected there. Think about David. Saul had tried to kill David when Saul was still in power. And David spent much of his life on the run from Saul. But later on, when Saul has passed from the scene and David has become king, you know what David does? One of the most touching acts of David's kingship. He takes Saul's crippled son, Mephibosheth, into his household. And he gives this son of his enemy, this crippled man, Mephibosheth, a place at his table. Because that's what kings do. That's the royal law. Kings care for the weak and the needy. Or think about David's son Solomon. How does he describe true kingship? Well, in Psalm 72, he puts it this way. The king defends the case of the poor and gives deliverance to the children of the needy and crushes the oppressor. That's just the kind of thing we've seen in James 2. Giving the poor a fair shot. Giving them a fair trial. Okay, not allowing them to be oppressed, making sure that there is justice available to the poor. That's how Solomon describes true kingship. In Proverbs 21, Solomon says, whoever stops up his ears to the cry of the poor, his cry will not be heard. You want God to hear your prayers? You want God to hear your cries? You better hear the cries of the poor man. That's what Solomon says. That's the royal law. Later in Proverbs, King Lemuel, so this is another royal figure, this time King Lemuel in Proverbs 31, says, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That's part of the job of the king. That's what the kingdom of God should look like, a place where the poor are judged fairly, where their rights are defended. The Bible's wisdom literature is royal literature. And it emphasizes this theme of caring for the poor. See it also in Job. Job's part of the the wisdom literature of the Bible. Job himself was a king. And in chapter 29, he describes how he lived out his office as king. He says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help them. And then, of course, there's Jesus himself who describes his ministry this way in Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist is languishing in prison and starts to doubt, maybe I was confused, maybe I was mistaken, maybe Jesus is not the Christ, maybe he's not the promised king. And so he sends a couple messengers, two witnesses to Jesus to ask. And this is what Jesus says in response, go back and tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Those acts of Jesus, those acts of mercy to the needy are signs of His royalty. Signs of His Messiahship. Signs that He is the Christ. That He is the promised King. These are proofs of His kingship. Caring for the poor and the needy in this way. And of course, it is a pattern for us as well since we are citizens of Christ's kingdom. Since we are a royal priesthood. A kingly priesthood. A kingly people. We are to obey the royal law as well. It's interesting, Matthew chapter 25, uh, as Jesus teaches about the great final judgment, a passage that has a lot in common with James chapter 2, James makes it clear that he will judge our faith at the last day by examining our works. And specifically the kinds of works that are in view there, works of caring for the poor. People are vindicated or condemned at the last day in Matthew 25 depending upon how they have treated the hungry, the sick, the imprisoned. 
Because as Jesus says, what you do for the least of these, you do for Jesus Himself. Matthew 25 is a great companion passage with this part of James chapter 2. Matthew 25 teaches the same truth about the final judgment, about final justification as James chapter 2. It's a final judgment that is impartial, where we will be judged according to our works and where mercy will be shown to the merciful. That's it. It's really that simple. That's what it's about. Care for the poor is required by the royal law Christ has given to us. Kings care for the poor. If we're a kingdom of priests, we can't just pay lip service to the needs of the poor. We have to do something on their behalf. Again, we can't be hearers only or talkers only. We must be doers. Again, it's interesting to me, it stands out to me how often the prophets of Israel and the Old Covenant Scriptures have to charge the people with unfaithfulness at precisely this point because they have failed to care for the poor and the needy. They've either oppressed the poor and needy themselves or they've allowed the oppression to go on unchecked when they could have done something about it. They've ignored the plight of the poor and the underprivileged and the disadvantaged. And then again, again, we read it in Amos this morning. Isaiah says the same thing. You find it again and again in the prophets. This indifference to the poor, this being calloused to human need, being indifferent to the needs of those around us. This is unbelief. It's unfaithfulness. What James says about true faith here is very similar to what John says about true love in 1 John chapter 3. James says true faith will seek to meet the material needs of the poor. Listen to what John says in 1 John 3 about true love. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's James' message as well. It's not enough to love in talk, in word. We have to love. We have to demonstrate our faith by love, through love, in deed and in truth. Or as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, what counts is faith working through love. Again, that's exactly James' message here. That's exactly what James is saying. What does faith do? Faith loves. Faith cares. Faith serves. Faith delivers. Faith works. Faith blesses. Faith shows mercy. Faith visits the widow and the orphan. Faith clothes the naked. Faith feeds the hungry. Faith meets material needs. Faith helps the poor. Faith bears burdens. Faith shares what it has with others. Faith gives us our motivation. Because you know when we're trusting in God, we know God has delivered us. God has rescued us. And so, of course, we want to rescue and deliver other people to, to give a little picture of that, a, a little symbolic representation of the gospel. God delivered you out of your poverty and brought you into the riches of Christ's kingdom. You see people in material poverty around you. You go and rescue them to replicate that, to give a little picture of that. Faith, faith makes us sharers in God's mission to bring in His kingdom, to renew the creation. That's why it's not enough to just meet the spiritual needs of people. We have to meet the bodily needs of people as well. Faith is made visible in our works. Faith is inseparable from good works. Living faith bears fruit. Without these works, 
faith is dead. Without fruit, faith is dead. In fact, it's interesting, later in this chapter, James will say faith is active along with works. In verse 22, works aren't just added to faith like they're two separate things. You just have to have both of them. No, faith works these good works. Faith produces these good works. These good works grow out of faith organically. Faith is expressed through works. Faith is the root. Works are the fruit. And that's why you can say if there is no fruit, there is no root. There's not a living tree here unless faith is being born. These are faith-activated works. Faith-driven works. Faith-filled works. These are works done in faith. They are the works of faith. They are works done by faith. And again, what James is teaching here is just what you see in every other place in Scripture about the faith-works relationship. It's certainly spelled out very nicely for us in Hebrews chapter 11, where Paul again and again says, by faith, so-and-so acted in such and such a way. By faith, Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a new place. By faith, Abraham offered his son Isaac. You see the pattern here. By faith, by faith, by faith. Faith produces action. Again and again, you see it there in Hebrews chapter 11. The kinds of actions that flow out of faith. Obedient actions. True faith produces good works. By faith, good works are performed. That's why Martin Luther said faith is a busy little thing. Faith gets to work. Faith makes a difference. If faith is genuine, the works will be there to prove it. In James' illustration of caring for the poor, we see something very important. Faith is not content to stay confined to the private sphere. Faith acts in a public and culturally visible kind of way. Faith creates a new kind of of life, a new way of life, a new way of living, a new kind of society. Faith has cultural, political, economic, and social dimensions to it. It has a a, a cultural, political, economic, and social impact on the world. That's why I say faith doesn't just change your life, but through your life, faith changes the world. Faith that doesn't form culture, faith that doesn't produce a new kind of culture, a new kind of society, is a dead faith. True faith transforms not only our own lives, true faith transforms the world. By our faith, We change the culture. James is showing us here, faith can't stay private, hidden away in the heart, tucked away in the recesses of our minds. No, faith is going to bust out into the open in good works. Works of mercy and justice, works of service and love. That's what you see throughout this section. And so James is telling us if we have the world's resources, We should hold them with an open hand and an open heart so we can bless others with them. Open your home. Make room at your table. Go find people who are broken and hurting and be an agent of healing and wholeness in their lives. That's James' message. Show mercy without partiality to all who are in need. You know, one thing that really strikes me about this theme in Scripture of of caring for the poor, is how many times in Scripture generosity to the poor is connected to festivity and joy. Maybe if there's a lack in our, in our joyfulness, in our, in our feasting, our festivity, it's because we don't have enough poor around to share those things with. In Deuteronomy 14, when the Israelites go to the temple to celebrate the major feasts, 
with meat and with strong drink. They are urged to remember the poor, especially the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Deuteronomy 14 says, they too shall come and eat with you and be satisfied. They shall share in your joy. And in this way, your joy will be multiplied. Certainly, this is what Jesus did when, when He gathered poor multitudes around Him, feeding them and rejoicing with them, sharing His joy with them. The point is, we're to invite the poor to share in our abundance, our plenty, our joy. We're to be generous and merciful. That's how you show your faith, according to James. Not mere words, but action. Actions that correspond to those words, that put flesh on those words. Yeah, we want to see souls saved by bringing others to faith in Christ. That's why evangelism is so important. We don't just minister to souls, we minister to bodies as well because redemption is holistic. God saves the body as well as the soul. And so we should seek to meet people's spiritual needs, certainly, but we should also seek to meet their physical needs as well. God cares for material creation we must also. James returns in verse 17 to what he opened this little section with back in verse 14. It says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Why all this focus on faith? Because there's something so central and so crucial and so unique about faith. Again, go back to the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1 where he speaks of holding to the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus. See, by faith, by holding to this faith, we're holding on to Jesus Himself. By this faith in the glorious Lord Jesus, we are united to this glorious Lord Jesus. By faith, we are united to Christ and made sharers in His life and His joy. So what does that look like? Well, this kind of faith is a faith that is never alone. It is a living, loving, working faith. A faith that is accompanied by good works that are its fruit. Don't just say you have faith. Prove it by what you do. Don't just confess the faith. Don't just confess the Nicene Creed here every Sunday. Prove that faith is yours by how you live. Don't just say nice things to the needy, the lonely, the sick, the hurting do kind things for them that improve their conditions, that relieve their suffering, that bear their burden. Faith without works is death. Saving faith works. There is no other way to hold to the faith of the glorious Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that our faith would not be mere hearing or mere talking, but would be seen in the doing May we do the things You call us to do. Striving for righteousness and purity. Seeking to show mercy to those in need. Living out the life of the kingdom. Obeying the royal law. The law of Christ. His teaching. Father, help us to do these things for Your glory. And for our good. And that the world might be transformed. That Your kingdom might more and more come. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.